Today on episode number 324 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dan Levy joins me to talk about his book, Teaching Effectively with Zoom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dan Levy has been a faculty member at Harvard University for over 15 years, where he has held various positions related to promoting excellence in teaching and learning. He currently serves as the faculty director of the Public Leadership Credential, the Harvard Kennedy School's flagship online learning initiative. His teaching was featured in Instructional Moves, a project coordinated by the Harvard Graduate School of Education aimed at helping faculty incorporate and refine high-leverage teaching practices. He co-founded Teachly, a web application aimed at helping faculty members to teach more effectively and more inclusively. He has won several teaching awards, including the university-wide David Pickard Award for Teaching and Mentoring. Dan is passionate about effective teaching and learning and enjoys sharing his experience and enthusiasm with others, which you are about to hear. Dan, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start out by doing a little detective work. So you wrote a book about Zoom. Some people are really concerned that Zoom is taking over the world. So I first need to find out, are you in cahoots somehow with Zoom? Are you an investor? Did you secretly write a book to try to grow Zoom's sales even more than they already have grown? Thank you for that question. No, I'm not an investor. I wish I had been an investor before uh, COVID, but I'm not an investor in Zoom. I know some of the people in charge of education at Zoom, and I feel like they're the hardest in their right place and they're trying to do good for education but i don't i don't have any formal affiliation with with them and actually i didn't intend to write this book you know when covid came i like many other educators struggled to see what we were going to do online despite the fact that i had taught online and the book came about from observing educators teachers and professors and faculty members do very creative things with Zoom to teach effectively. And I thought it would be helpful to share with the rest of the world what I was seeing. You start out by acknowledging something I think is absolutely key. And I don't feel like it's being talked about enough right now. And that is just naming things. And specifically what you ask us to name is to name the loss or the losses that we've had. Many of us have experienced such vibrant, rich experiences in an in-person class, and we don't know quite how to, and I want to be careful not to use the word replicate, because it's not an exact replication. That would be not really how we want to approach it. But what are some of the losses that you either have seen or your colleagues have seen in terms of what do we have to mourn? What should we name from those losses? I think this is a very good question. I would say that, you know, 
for each of us, being in a classroom with our students represents a very human experience, and each of us is going to miss different aspects of it. In my case, as I was actually trying to prepare for producing an online video, I had footage from an actual physical classroom last year when I uh, taught. And I just, I don't know why, I started watching my own class and realized how much of what was going on in that class had to do with the fact that we were in the same physical space. And, you know, within those 10 minutes, there was a student making a joke and then a student on the other side of the room laughing about it. And then there was something so human about that experience that 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 moment I realized, my God, I'm going to miss this. I, I really am. Despite the fact that, you know, I, I think you can do great things online. I think that part, that human connection is one that I think is hard to replicate online. And so, so I don't know that that's universal for every teacher, but I, I suspect that for all of us, uh, we're going to miss something of the being together in a physical space with our students. And I don't think, you know, people are asking us to embrace online learning. I don't think we can fully embrace online learning until we have acknowledged that loss, until we have understood the values that we were trying to advance in that physical classroom and we find different ways of enacting those values and advancing them in the virtual classroom. We've explored those losses and that's an important part of the process, but another part can be looking at the affordances. What can a synchronous class delivered via Zoom or some other type of web conferencing tool, what are those affordances that couldn't easily be replicated if we tried to do it in person. So what? Sure. I, let's start out by just what's an affordance that has surprised you, where you go, yeah. wow, I didn't really think about this, but look, you could do this in Zoom, but you wouldn't as easily be able to do this in person. Sure. I'm going to suggest a, a few things. So one of them that's very clear to me is that in a physical classroom, a lot of, of our interactions with students happens through voice. We speak, they speak, and there's the dialogue. And I have to say, despite remarkable advances of technology, I think dialogue is not the place where virtual is going to provide affordances over in-person experience. But having said that, I think what virtual provides is a wider range of ways in which our students can engage in our classroom. And that, that has been interesting to me and somewhat surprising. Yes, we can do polling in a physical classroom. Many of us do it anyway. But I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about two particular things that surprised me. One is the the group work. So many of us in a physical classroom assign students to do some group work. But the way at least I used to do it in the past is, you know, students would get together and they would work for a little while, and then I would circulate and try to see what what was going on in the groups. But you know, you're trying to listen, they see you, that you're trying to listen. It's hard to know whether they are actually doing the same thing that they would do without you being present and so on. Well, if you, in in Zoom and I presume in other platforms, if you send the students to these breakout rooms and ask them, you, you combine this with a collaboration tool like Google Doc or Google Slides, you can actually see the work that the students are producing in real time. And so while they're doing this work, you are basically collecting information. You're seeing, oh, group three 
you know, five minutes have gone by and they don't, they haven't written a thing about what I asked them to do. Let me go and check on them. Or, you know, group four wrote this very interesting argument that is in not, you know, that it's not exactly consistent with what group seven did. And so when they come back, you are able to generate a conversation and a discussion that I don't, I don't think, frankly, at least I didn't see the equivalent of doing that in a physical classroom. And I think this is one of the ways in which the virtual classroom is better because it's allowing you to see where the students are. The second one I want to say, even though it's a little bit controversial, the use of chat. So in a physical classroom, you might sort of say, all right, can you give me an example of X? And then student one would give you an example of X and then student two will give you an example of X and so on. And the process is very sequential. Whereas in a virtual classroom, you know, within two minutes, you can have 10 or 15 examples that you can use to launch a discussion. Or, you know, you can ask students, you know, what did you learn in today's class? Within two minutes, you have every student is giving you two or three lines of what they learn. It's so easy to do. We have the physical classroom equivalent, in this case, the one minute paper. But I don't think we have appreciated some of the affordances that the virtual classroom gives us what you talked about, and we'll explore a little bit more, especially the group work, because I want to ask you a few questions even, because that's not something I have explored quite as much as you have. But I just love even the aspect of how quickly you could do what I refer to as sort of a grown-up version of show and tell. So the other day, my colleagues and I were, were putting on a training for our new faculty, And so they hadn't arrived yet. So we're just, you know, we're just connecting. We don't get to see each other that much in terms of in person, which is to say never in person anymore. And so I I happened to work with a colleague whose his birthday is either two weeks or a month after mine. So we're very, very close in age. And our musical repertoire is very, very on key. We I mean, we're just I I can't in fact I don't think we've ever brought up a song that the other one doesn't have some reference to a memory. You know how they really music can tie so much with your memory and stuff? So there's this group of teenage boys who started listening to music they've never heard before and in real time they'll stream their reactions to it. And so they listened to the drum solo from Phil Collins in the air tonight, which just, I mean, brought me instantly back <laughs> to, to my own. And, and so <laughs> we're showing it to our other colleague, Shannon, who wasn't, you know, hadn't seen these yet. So I can go to share screen and share video and optimize for video. And then she could watch it. And then David could say, oh, wait, no, but I've got, I like the Jolene song. So let me show that song. And then of course we had to get serious when our, <laughs> the new faculty came on, but they didn't yeah. come on at the same time. So one of the new faculty members teaches chemistry. And I said, oh, since the, you know, other people haven't joined us yet, I want to show you this streaming video. I just saw a little clip of a guy that does a bunch of streaming chemistry classes and he uses Twitch. I mean, it was just like I wanted to, it was just so fun to be able to be like show and tell, show and tell. And you couldn't really do that as quickly or as easily back and forth if you were all in the same room, even if you had the best sort of airplay kind of type setup or, or that kind of thing. Absolutely. In a physical classroom, in some way, the, there's a predominance of the teacher being the pers- the main person sharing the work. And I think yeah. in a virtual classroom, the students can share the work much more easily. There's a chapter in the book that is about that, of, of students sharing the work. And I think that chapter, in my mind, is a little bit underdeveloped because I don't think we have yet thought about all the ways in which our students can share the work. And my hope is that over the next few months, we're going to discover a lot of ways in which our students will be able to do that. 
You have tremendous advice throughout the whole book. I'd like to focus on one of the broad areas, and that is around engagement, because that does tend to be the area I've seen faculty would have the most challenge with. You know, Zoom is a relatively easy platform if I want to share my slides and give a lecture. You know, that that's not that hard to do. You talked about chat. You know, I can figure out which who's my participants and are they raising their hand? You know, those are really quick and pretty easy features to use. But to figure out how do I take the level of engagement that I might hopefully have, by the way, that's one of the assumptions we sometimes make that they were actually engaging in a classroom and then trying to take it online. Sometimes we have to, yeah, we have to kind of relearn these things. But you mentioned a few things. We could have students speak, which we were kind of just talking about. They can vote, they can write, they can work in groups, and they can share their work. Let's start with voting. Because voting would be one of those things that there's kind of two broad ways we can do it, right? What are the two broad ways we might have students vote on something? Maybe there's more than two. Um, (laughs) I was speaking more broadly, uh, like within Zoom or outside of Zoom, yeah. Sure. So, well, first of all, I'm a super big fan of voting or polling as a way of understanding where your students are. I actually learned this the hard way about 10 years ago and I I tell the story in the book, but when I asked what I thought was a warm-up question to my students, thinking that, oh, 80% of them are going to get this question answered correctly. And when the results came up, only 17% of the students got the right answer. And that to me was like a wake-up call as to how, frankly, how clueless I can be as to where they are. So I'm a super big fan of Paul in a physical classroom to begin with. So I think in the Zoom classroom or in, the, in any virtual classroom, you can use the polling tool from the, in this case from Zoom, or you can bring an external tool. So in my case, the external tool that I used to use in a physical classroom was Poll Everywhere. It's, a, it's an electronic tool, but it's great. It has many, many benefits. I would say in trying to make that decision, whether you use an external tool versus the Zoom's uh, native tool, I would say that a big question is the extent to which you you need the sophistication of a polling solution that was just developed for that. I, I think it's fair to say that Zoom's polling capabilities at this moment are fairly basic. My hope is that they'll improve over time. But if you need something more sophisticated, you can go to another tool. The big trade-off in my mind or the big disadvantage is that as anyone who has taught in Zoom or in any of these other solutions can attest, there are many windows in your computer to monitor at the same time. And so if you look for an external solution, then you have to keep track of another window. And frankly, your students have to keep track of another window. And so that I think is a trade-off. In in my particular case, I happen to sort of say, you know what, I'm going to stick to the Zoom sort of native polling tool because I think for my purposes, it does pretty much what I would like. In the book, I also describe that within Zoom, you can do a little hack without using Zoom's native polling tool to know not only the aggregate results, but to know which student voted for which option, which again, uh, speaking of engagement, allows you to engage the students in a way that would be much harder to do because you can say, Bonnie, I noticed you said, B, can you tell us why? And then, Jimmy, I noticed you said C, can you tell us why? And you generate a dialogue that's super easy to do because you know where each student stands. 
You also talk about the downside of doing something like that, that you wouldn't want to do that if you're going to make someone look foolish, that there are certainly a lot of advantages to anonymous. So you kind of need to pick the right tool. The other thing I think we need to be aware of as educators is watching the types of questions that we're asking. And you have an entire table and many different examples to make sure we're not only asking a right or wrong question, but bringing in other types of questions. And one that I don't do enough, but I'm still kind of obsessed with this idea is the, the technique of using prediction. So there is a lot of research in the scholarship of teaching and learning around if we ask someone to predict, what do you think happened next? Or what would you advise them to do next? Just getting people to think about what was coming, what would come, you know, what would the result be? And that kind of carries over a lot of different disciplines to the, the approach to do that. So right or wrong, predict what happens, give your opinion, you know, that, and then, and then pull everywhere those external tools. They even have things where you can see the degree to which, so sometimes I'll do a two by two grid and it could even be like the Eisenhower matrix where it's how urgent is something or non-urgent, how important or not important. And then if I just asked a multiple choice question, I see no degrees there, but if I, if you could tap on that graphic, then I can really see, wow, this person is living in (laughs) just urgent, urgent, (laughs) urgent, the house is on fire kind of urgency and not really able to, in that particular example, I'm giving, do some of the more proactive things and reflection and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think more generally the, the, the moment that you ask yourself the question, what is in my students? mind right now what, what do they think about this issue that is a moment where doing some sort of fall is one that you want to think about because it, it can tell you and it, it can affect how you conduct the rest of the class in your case if you have a prediction question and 90 percent of the class predicted something one option that is a very different classroom discussion to be had than if they were split 50-50 on the question that you ask. And so and so knowing where they are allows you to not only assess where your understanding or their understanding, but it also allows you to decide how you conduct the next part of your class. I'm always so intrigued when they do get the question, and this goes in air quotes, but people can't see me doing the air quotes right now when they get a question wrong. So often if we talk about it, especially if it was close, like you mentioned, but it kind of doesn't really matter. So I'd be, okay, let's say the people who voted for A, they were wrong according to this, but how could we make them right? Like, how do you think that they were right? You know, just let's argue A. And I can find out either where my teaching has been really poor, I didn't explain something well, or there was some confusion that emerges, or the question was actually written really bad and, and that actually they were, they actually knew more than getting the answer wrong would have That's suggested. Right. That's right. I think we often discover when we do polling that sometimes the question is not written well enough to allow us to distinguish. I love the way that you frame that. I, I One of my favorite things to do after polling, particularly if say only 20% of people of students voted for option A, Sometimes it's hard to get that 20% to defend their choice because they're thinking, well, maybe maybe that's not the... And so, so I, I, I like to ask the question, if you had voted for question for option A, what might have been the reasoning you could have employed to this option? And all of a sudden, then people want to participate because they're like, well, I'm not confessing that I did question A. I'm just sort of trying to look for an argument. So I, I, I love the way that you framed that. 
I want to go back for just a minute because you were talking about all other things being equal. Using the native polling tool in Zoom is the way to go. And I'd like to explain a little bit more explicitly for people that haven't experimented with it yet. When you say native, you literally mean that inside, if I have the Zoom window open right now, and you, which right. we do, this is not even pretend. <laughs> we really have a Zoom window <laughs> open right now. And, and Dan, if you were to poll me right now, I could just take my mouse and click inside of the Zoom window. Right. There's no other windows that I need to pull up or be worried about. Yeah. And a lot of times when you start sharing your screen, it pops open the Zoom window to a maximized window on someone's computer right. anyway. So yeah. it's kind of hard for me to get somewhere else. How do I get behind this? So once I start clicking literally on the Zoom window itself, I suppose it pops up actually in a separate window, right? But I mean, it's it feels like I'm still it, in it, Zoom. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really like a dialogue box that mm -hmm. shows up on top of your Zoom screen. So once you vote, then then that's it. You can get it out of the way as opposed to, you know, going to an internet browser and so on. I want to be clear that referring the Zoom native tool to, to an external tool that I, I don't think that's like a universal recommendation. That's certainly where I fall in the trade-off, but other people might fall elsewhere. So for example, if, if you like the kind of polling where, like the one you described, where you want to have people locate something in a diagram, or if you want people to type words and do a word cloud, right now Zoom's polling tool doesn't have that as a capability. So you, you might sacrifice convenience for using a more powerful tool. But I would say if you've, if you've never done polling and you're just getting started, probably starting with a native tool that Zoom has is probably the, the best thing. And even like if you don't even want to use Zoom's native poll, and again, there are trade-offs, but you could just ask a question and there are some buttons at the bottom of a participant list, just vote yes, no, go slower, go fast. And right there in, in an instant, you'll see where your class is. My kids are used to using iPads. And so if they yes. come over and I'm working on my Mac, they <laughs> start touching the screen. I'm sure you've seen That's kids right. and adults <laughs> do the same thing. I mean, it's hard when we're in a different context. It's hard for any of us sometimes to know. I did want to encourage people, yes, please use the native tool if you're new to it, but don't be too afraid to get started. I can guarantee you some of your students will have difficulty managing those multiple windows, but once they get over the hump, it's going to become quite natural for them. So if you, you know, you get them used to, okay, we're going to do some poll everywhere. Okay. You know, it really in a pretty quick succession, they'll become accustomed to it, but there definitely is a longer learning curve than if you just use that native tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. One area of your book that I am the most excited about exploring, I mentioned already, and I want to describe where I have colleagues who, who describe sort of this challenge where they love using the breakout rooms, but even they felt distanced from their students in terms of that engagement just in general. But then all of a sudden I've sent them out and I can't see them or hear them anymore and I have no idea what's going on. And some of that you sort of started to imply about this earlier. Some of that's about a control thing and we kind of have to get over that. My learning is messy and you're not going to be able to control it all and why would you want to, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, realistically speaking, it is helpful to be able to have some gauge on what learners are experiencing. And many of the instructional methods, you know, kind of bring this to mind. So talk to us, and you have so many examples in the book, but talk to us about an example where one of the faculty or you use a collaborative document, whether it's Google Slides or Google Docs. 
and you send them out into yeah. the breakout rooms and then they do some sort of a collaborative exercise just so we can get a picture of it. Sure. So before I describe the very concrete exercise that I can sort of tell you about a colleague who did this, I, I want to say a few things about breakout rooms. I, I think they're in, an incredibly powerful tool, but I would say, and in fact, they're very powerful and a lot of faculty members recognize that and a lot of students recognize that, that it's a powerful tool. But I want to mention two things that I think are particularly important. The first one is, as an instructor, this is true for anything you do online, but I think it's particularly true for breakout rooms. You have to be incredibly explicit about what is it that you want your students to do in the breakout rooms. I cannot tell you the number of students that I have spoken with that say, well, you know, sometimes they're very helpful, but sometimes we don't know what the instructor wants. And we spend the first five minutes of the breakout room trying to figure out what is it that we're supposed to be doing. So being super explicit, and by this, I literally mean discipline yourself to have a slide. Because if, if you're going to invest 10 or 15 minutes of class time for this activity, you want to make sure that it has a good payoff. And I think being able to be explicit to your students is, is very important. I would say that's kind of probably the number one mistake. And then the other thing, which I know teachers and instructors rarely have the luxury of time, but the other thing I would say is in a lot of occasions, we give students too little time to do the activity that we're asking them to do. And so we bring them back from the breakout rooms before they have had a real chance to wrestle with the issue. So those are two are sort of general guidance that have little to do with using collaborative tools, but I want to put them on the table before we proceed, because even if you didn't do any of the collaborative tools, I think this, these two things apply. May I also um, call out what you yep. said in terms of disciplining yourself to have a slide? I see two reasons for that. So one reason is, and yes. I'm, I'm laughing because I feel like you caught me. Oh, <laughs> you know, this would be an area if you observed my teaching, you'd think you didn't plan that out. You're you're going off the cuff here. You could have planned that out better. So I've, I've definitely fallen into that trap. So one is if I discipline myself to have a slide, I will be more explicit in those instructions. But the second thing you talked about earlier, the dialogue isn't necessarily the affordance of a synchronous right. virtual session like this we may have bandwidth issues. You might have cut out right in the middle of giving the instructions and there's no other yes. way for the student to get the information that you've just shared. So you let me accomplish two things when I discipline myself enough to have that slide. Thank you for that advice. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go one step further, which is not only the bandwidth in terms of what the internet is doing, but the bandwidth, the mental bandwidth of our students. Like imagine that you sort of indicated the instructors in 10 seconds and imagine for us for a minute that in those 10 seconds someone came into the room of your student or your student whatever was tweeting just something that they shouldn't be doing but those 10 seconds are lost the student has no idea of what the instructors were and now all of a sudden they are in a room for 10 or 15 minutes or five minutes or 20 minutes without knowing that so that that goes to that in terms of using collaborative tools, I'm a big fan because of what I said before. I think being able to observe the students' work in real time has incredible advantages for you. It makes their work more visible. It makes them more accountable for producing something so that I think it also creates incentives for, for them. So I'm going to describe what Julie Wilson, who teaches at the Kennedy School, does with breakout rooms, which I found very interesting. And if you want, 
I can send you a link to the slides, the uh, sample slides that she uses, so you, your listeners have a very concrete example. But the basic idea is, you know, she's in a classroom. She has, say, roughly 50 students. And she is, in, in her case, she's teaching a case study. And she has different stakeholders in that case study. And so she assigns different breakout rooms to different stakeholders. So if you're in breakout group number one, you are, this was a you know, case about Jamaica government. So you are in the central government of Jamaica. And if you are in group number two, you are in the local government. And if you're in group number three, you're in a school. If you're group number four, you're in a health center and so on. For each of these groups, she creates a template slide and Google Slides in this case, but any other uh, tool could work that basically has a table that students are meant to fill in during that breakout room time. The table also has like what the group members are, who's going to be the timekeeper, who's going to be the spokesperson. So everything is there. And while the uh, participants are working, she's examining all the Google Slides. Okay, group number one is making this argument. Group number three is making this argument. When she brings them back together, it's a thing of beauty. She's like, okay, group number three, you said this. And now group number five, actually, you seem to say something different. Let's connect with group number three. And so all of a sudden, there's a conversation happening just because she took the time to orchestrate what the students did. Now, is she using four different files or five different files? That she, the oh, templates sorry, I forgot getting, to clarify. Yeah, yes. Templates getting copied, uh, or is it one slide that they're filling in collaboratively off of one? So obviously it depends on the instructor. In her case, and certainly my case, I think the easiest thing to do is to have one Google slide deck. Yeah. And in that slide deck, you have essentially the same slide reproduced as many times as groups you have. And the title of the slide makes very explicit. This is for breakout group one, this is for group two, and so on. So you create the template, you make sure that the template is good. And once you do, you reproduce it and say 10 times if you have gonna have 10 breakout groups, and then you just use it. I think it works fairly well, but if you have like a hundred students, then a hundred students working on the same Google deck becomes a little bit cumbersome. You know, there's a little trick. You could use two slide decks instead of one. Uh, it gets a little bit more complicated, but it can it can be done. But the 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 key thing is that while they're working in groups, Julie is actually checking the work that they're doing and thinking about how she's going to orchestrate the next discussion. Not only based on the arguments that these groups are making, but also based on the students that are in each group. So she can sort of say, you know, this group has a student who hasn't participated in a while. I'm going to call on them to see if I can get this student to participate. So a lot of that is hard to do in a physical classroom where you're just circulating, trying to see what each group is doing. Yeah, I, I just I'm so excited about being able to experiment more. That's kind of where I want to take my teaching to the next level. That'll be my focus for the fall. So I so appreciate all of that advice. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, I hate to end this conversation. Tell me, <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how much I hate because I just so enjoyed your book. In fact, this is the time in Thank the show you. where we each get to give our recommendations. And my recommendation is to read your book. I do not <laughs> recommend the books for every author who comes on the show. But I mean, I just, it was both a, it sounds, maybe sound... <laughs> patronizing. I don't mean it that way. It was a very easy to read book, but I mean, it's just, it's laid out. It's laid out in a very practical way to say, these are the ways you could engage. These are the ways you could teach. These are the, and, and then 
it's laid out simple steps to follow and then examples of how you could apply this in different disciplines. It was, I mean, it just was a delight to read. So I'm going to say the other thing I really enjoyed about it in terms of it's very easy to translate into one's practice and pedagogy, but I also really liked that you treat things like there's no magic answers. You appropriately communicate the nuance to some aspects of our teaching. So you'll say, you know, this is how one person tries it. There are other ways, you know, you just, you, you don't try to simplify things so much that you leave out room that there's a lot of ways you could approach things in these spaces. So. Thank you so much. I, I truly appreciate it. I don't take the it's simple as patronizing. I actually worked very, very hard to try to make it as practical and as simple as possible without losing the nuance that I think are essential to being able to teach effectively. So if I can help educators do a little bit of a better job this fall than we did in the spring, that would be a great reward from my perspective. I think in terms of recommendation, well, first of all, be, before we end, and I know I know we have to end soon, but I, I do want to thank you, Moni, because I, for the service, actually, that you provide to the teaching community. I think your podcast deals with teaching in a very, very broad way that I think makes it very applicable. You have a, a very wide range of guests, of topics. You know, you just the last few episodes that I listened to, you know, you have someone talking on mental health. And then the next day you have talk, someone talking about assessment. So I think you provide a huge service to the education community. And I want to thank you very genuinely for doing that. And it's pretty clear to me that you do that out of a sense of service to your community. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. I think in terms of the recommendations, I'll divide them into two. And again, I don't receive royalties from any of these people, just to be super clear. The first one, in terms of a book about teaching, and I, I think you probably have uh, read this book, but I, I read this book uh, a couple of years ago called Small Teaching by Jim Lang that I thought was incredibly thoughtful. And, and what I liked about the book was how practical it was to make changes. And in fact, I say in the preface of the book that there were two books that generated this enthusiasm for me. It's like, oh my God, I could do this in the classroom. And my hope is that my book can do that, although that's a tall order. But this is a book that I recommend you read because it has, the, in my mind, the right mix of being grounded on the literature of effective teaching and learning, and at the same time, being very practical in terms of the things that can be done. I realized that some, you know, this book was written pre-COVID, so maybe there are some things there are a little bit harder to apply nowadays, but I think the principles are there for sure. I think in terms of, I know you do a lot of productivity stuff, so I cannot resist. And I know that they're a sponsor of yours, but they're not a sponsor of me. So I'll just sort of say it. I use Text Expander all the time to automate stuff on my own sort of uh, life. And I, I find it uh, to be incredibly useful and, and helpful. And more generally, in terms of technology, I subscribe to the idea that if you can automate something, you should try to do it so that you save more time to do other stuff that you want to be doing. First of all, I can't resist going for a little bit more in the sense of I'm excited to tell you that James Lang is coming out with a new book. I loved small teaching too. And his new Great. book will be in, oh, I can't remember if it's October or December, but it's called Distracted. And it is very much in the yeah. same vein as small teaching 
and I can't remember the subtitle, but it's like why students are distracted and what we can do about it. But in the premise is instead of trying to remove the distractions, ban the laptops, you know, the, all the all the different things, right. is to redirect the attention. It's about the attention, not the getting rid of the distraction. I'm not explaining it very well, but it's a brilliantly written book. And I love yeah. that you admire him too, because your book is written very much in a similar structure that, you know, practical ways to, you know, here's the theory and then here's how you can put it into practice. And then funny thing, I just have to tell you about the sponsors thing. <laughs> I should have told you from the very beginning, uh, my husband and I have used Zoom for many, many, many years, and we actually are an affiliate of theirs. So when I, oh when I send okay. people to Zoom, I actually will make money now, not millions of okay. dollars, but we might get a month right. or two free off of our service that we already pay for. So that, I'm actually the money maker in this good. gig. You can sell some books and, uh, we can make that's, money off our that, affiliate that, link. That, that's that's good. Yeah. So, uh, in any case, th thank you so much for having me. I I, I hope this is uh, helpful to your audience, and and if you're interested in in more, I hope the book will be helpful. Oh yes, and I'm interested not just in the book. Everyone should go pick it up, but also having you back because let's talk about productivity on another another show. It's been a while since we did that, and we need we need these kinds of things during COVID. I mean, we really need that. It's it looks different to me. I have to sort of simplify things. It's not about every trick in the book, but just, you know, what are the small ways that we can just try to manage this stuff? So I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. A pleasure. I'm so thankful to have been connected with Dan Levy for today's conversation. Thanks for the person who recommended him for the show. It was a perfect fit. And I'm so glad to have read his book as well. I encourage everyone to head over to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 324 in order to access his book and the resources associated with it. He's got a bunch of online resources with examples and other possible ways to incorporate the learning from the book. And thanks to all of you for listening and to being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. If you've yet to subscribe to the, I would say weekly updates, but they're not weekly. Who are we kidding? <laughs> the sometimes occasional email updates would love to have you subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.